We thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus. We thank you for that glory that he had with you before the creation of the world. We thank you for his glory made manifest to us in his earthly life and especially in his death on a cross for us and for our sins. We thank you for his risen and exalted power, his glory now as he sits at your right hand. And so it's in his name that we ask, Father, that you would come now into our midst, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word, especially to your word through the book of Hebrews, and that you would do this for your glory and for our increasing benefit as we seek to serve you and love you and um, increase our faith in you and in your son. And so again, it's in his name that we ask this. Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, welcome. This is going to be a five-part series on the book of Hebrews. And I, I had to pick the book of Hebrews. I, you know, I got to pick what I wanted to do. They, they let me do that, which is nice. And um, I, many of you know that I speak and teach a lot on the Gospel of John. And that's what I wrote my thesis on in seminary. And if you ask me today, I don't think you're supposed to have favorite books of the, of the Bible. But if but I do. You're not supposed to play favorites, I think, because you're supposed to say you love it all, and I do love it all. But my favorite book is John. But about 10 years ago, when I was in co- uh, 15 years, mm. whenever I was in college, my favorite book was the book of Hebrews. And I went to, a, I remember this because I went to a Christian school, a Christian college, and, um, and as we were in this Bible class, we had to go around and say what our favorite book was. And every, I, I kid you not, about 90% of the people in the room like good evangelicals said, Romans was their favorite book. And, um, and I love Romans as well. Um, I think I see that the message of Romans is in line with the message of Hebrews, but there is something about the book of Hebrews that really speaks to me. And I think it might be, is it the imagery? Is it, there's something about the way the book of Hebrews is written that just captures my imagination and draws my heart in worship, um, into worshiping Jesus for who he is. So, um, the book of Hebrews itself, as you know, um, we don't call, we don't know, do you know that we don't know who wrote it? Do you know that about it? Well, we, let's just say that. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. You know, we know Paul, which books Paul wrote. We know that um, Peter and John wrote other books. We know, um, you know, even that Jesus' brother wrote the book of Jude. Jesus, you know, and then there's James as well. James wrote James. Things like that. We know with certainty, we know with relative certainty that John, um, the evangelist, wrote the book of Revelation. But we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It has been a mystery. For centuries, and so the early church thought that maybe Paul wrote it because it was, there are some similar things about the atonement to what Paul writes in his letters. Um, then other people would say, "Oh no, maybe it was someone who was with Paul, but um, and knew Paul, but clearly is speaking in a different way." And the reason why we know it's different is because when you look at the Greek in the original language, the original language is different. It's a different writing style than in Paul. I don't know if you know this, but you can tell by looking at the original language how proficient in Koine Greek the writer was. And it's one of the very interesting things. For many of the Jews in um, the first century, Greek would not have been their first language. Aramaic might have been their first language. So we see that with the book of Mark, with the book even of Matthew, um, their Greek is not as good. Their letters are not as good. You know, they're not as skilled in Greek as Paul is, or as Luke is, 
Luke is actually, Paul is such a great rhetorician. His argument is really good, but his grammar is still superseded by Luke. So I didn't know if you knew that, but the author of the book of Luke and Acts, because they're both written by the same author, his Greek is super amazing. He got, you know, almost all A's in his Greek class, or he might have even been a Greek-speaking Jew. He might have been a Hellenistic Jew. But um, when we look at Hebrews, Hebrews is, in fact, even better in its Greek than Luke and Acts. It, Hebrews surpasses all of them in term, all of the books of the New Testament in terms of its excellence in, in language, in the way that the grammar's put together, in the complexity of it. And so when you're reading the New Testament in Greek, which I'm sure you would all like to do, <laughs> when you're reading, if you read Hebrews, they, they, give, they give first year students um, John, the Gospel of John, because it's very simple. But then when you get to the book, the book of Hebrews, if you open it up and you start to try to decipher it in Greek, it is very difficult. It's because it's really good Greek. He really knew his stuff. Um, so all that to say, that makes us say, well, no, it couldn't have been Paul because his language, <laughs> language skills are not quite on the same level. They're different. Um, then the other thing is that, well, when, so the author remains a mystery to this day, but we know something about who the original audience was, and that's, you can suss that out from the title. We, we are reasonably sure, based on the contents of the book, that the original audience were um, Jewish Christians, and not just Jewish, any old Jewish Christians, but there may, very well might have been a significant number of Levites in that original congregation that received this letter because there's all of this discussion about the priesthood, about the earthly priesthood, and about Jesus as the great high priest. Um, and the reason why there's this argument, this is the argument that we see throughout it, that, um, that um, the, the author is making this argument, and it's a beautiful argument. He doesn't get dissuaded from his argument. He doesn't go down these bunny trails the way some of the New Testament authors will, especially Paul. He'll go down a bunny trail, and you follow him, and then you think, wait, where were we originally? Hebrews is not like that. The argument just goes, 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 goes. Um, in, in increase, he increasingly makes these individual points that, that um, prove his argument. And the way he does this is that he's arguing from different angles. He's arguing the same thing, but taking, uh, taking on different angles and looking at it in different ways and saying, well, this is why this, this is why this, this is why this. And the ultimate message of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is greater than any one of the intermediaries that the Jewish faith had previously known. That Jesus Christ alone is the only one who can perfectly atone for human sin. That he is the great high priest. And so the author does this by saying very many, very different things about who it, Jesus is greater than. So he consistently says, this is this argument. It's called the argument from the lesser to the greater. It's a comparison. And the way that the author does this is he'll say, remember how wonderful and great this was in our past as um, Jew, Jews, well, Jesus is greater, and here's how he's greater. Remember how wonderful this is? Well, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And he does this with angels, which we're looking at today. He does it with Moses. He talks about Moses and how Jesus is greater 
than Moses, that the rest that he is bringing his people into is an eternal rest, a different kind of rest than the rest that God used uh, Moses to take the people out of slavery from Egypt into the promised land and into that rest in the promised land. Um, And then he also, and we'll look at these in successive weeks, the third week we'll look at Jesus as greater than Melchizedek. Anybody remember? This is like a Sunday school Bible quiz. If you can remember who Melchizedek is, you get a gold star. Yeah, he is a priest. He's a priest in Genesis. And he's a priest before the, remember, this is before the Levitical priesthood was ordained by God and and brought about because the Levitical priesthood was centered around Aaron, remember Moses' brother, um, of the the family of Levi, um, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. So Melchizedek is a priest to God before Aaron. And so what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is a priest of the order of Melchizedek, that Melchizedek was a forerunner of Jesus Christ himself, a type of the one who would come of this completely separate order of priests than the Levitical order of priests through Aaron. So he's saying, again, Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Aaron. And then he'll go on to say this wonderful just exposition of, and Gil Cracky will be doing this week. I'm sort of disappointed I have to be gone because this wonderful, it climaxes with this wonderful explanation of how Jesus Christ is himself the high priest of a better covenant because he is not only the priest itself, but he is also the victim in the sacrifice. So that's, that's the progression of the argument through the book of the Hebrews. And the whole reason, the whole purpose for this argument, as far as the original congregation was concerned, was that they were in danger of falling away from Christianity and reverting back to prioritizing their Jewish beliefs. They were in danger because there was persecution. They were being persecuted. They had been persecuted. And we find out in chapter 10 that, um, that they might be about to enter more persecution. And they would rather not. They would rather not. It'd be a lot easier if they just said, well, Jesus is great, but we're really just Jews. Um, the Jewish faith was a faith that was um, not, not, not smiled upon by Rome, uh, the Roman overlords. Remember, the Roman Empire controlled the entire Mediterranean basin during Jesus' life and afterwards um, and beforehand. But that um, the Jewish faith had special dispensation they, were, they got special dispensation not to worship the emperor and the whole pantheon of Roman gods because they, had, they were such an ancient faith and because, um, because they would make a ruckus if they were forced to. Um, they were, you, know, you see this throughout with the Roman Empire. They had a lot of trouble with rebellious Jews. So they, they decided, you know, this is okay. You can worship your faith. We're not going to, you can worship your God. We're not going to make you worship the emperor or anyone else. So for these Jewish Christians, can you see how for them, as they were um, faced with the prospect of suffering for the name of Jesus, for believing in Jesus, how it might have been easy to think, well, we used to worship in a different way, and it was, it was fine, it wasn't so bad, and we won't be persecuted if we prioritize our faith in that way and say that we're really Jews and not Christians. So this message, the message of the book of Hebrews, is specifically to those people who thought that another way besides Jesus might be an easier way, a better way for their faith, 
for them to live out their faith. And what, what the writer is saying over and over and over and over again is there is no better way. Jesus is the best way. Well, you think angels are glorious? Well, Jesus is more glorious. You think Moses was a great prophet? Well, Jesus is even better. You think that the Aaronic priesthood is wonderful and can atone for your sins? Well, no, it can't, because Jesus is the only great high priest who once and for all made an atonement for sins. So all of that to say that this original congregation was dealing with all of these things, this message was specifically for them. We think also, I skipped over the date on my little outline, but the date, it, because, because one of the instruments in his argument is that the writer uses um, uh, lots of imagery from the Pentateuch itself. Remember, the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. And he uses that to look at um, what happened in the tabernacle and in the temple, that cultic worship where sacrifices were offered to God by the priests in the temple. And so because that um, is such a focus of the book of Hebrews, the, the tone in which it's taken on, it makes it sound as though those sacrifices were still going on at the time of the writing of the book. And we know that those sacrifices ended for good in AD 70, that year when the Romans came to put down a rebellion in Judea. And they came and they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. It was a horrible year for the, for the Jews in Judea. So that year marked the end, the destruction of the temple and the end of the cultic sacrifices. The way the author is talking about them, though, he, it's almost like he's pointing to them and saying, you see this as if it were still going on. So we know that it's a pretty early book written before 70 A.D. Any questions about that? Any questions about the mysterious author, the early date, um, the original audience, or that kernel of the message that Jesus is the great high priest of a better covenant, and that that message, that main argument of this author is proved repeatedly when he says, well, you think this is wonderful? Well, Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is so much better than this. Any questions about that before I go on to um, angels, which I did say I would talk about? Any questions about that? There's so few of us, we can ask questions and it won't be a problem. Okay, we're shy. Um, well, when we look at the book of Hebrews, and I encourage you, you know, I'm, we're skipping in this five-part series. We're not going to have time to go into depth in each verse. Well, I'm giving you the flyby version uh, over the course of five weeks. So I'd encourage you, if you feel drawn to it, that, that you can look at the top of the page. That is what pa Those passages are what I'll be covering each week. So this week, we're looking at um, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, through Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. And in that, those first two chapters of the book of Hebrews, essentially at the very beginning, what's interesting is that unlike other letters, there's no introduction. I, so-and-so, write to you, so-and-so, and there's a greeting, grace and peace to you. From There's nothing like that in this. The book just starts out, right out, with this theological exposition, this theological argument. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, that's verse 1, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Do you hear that already? Do you hear the better than argument already? Long ago, there were prophets, but now we have something even better. 
we have God's own son. And in those first three verses, first four verses, really, the argument is put forward, and I'll go into this in just a little bit, that there are three things about Jesus Christ, and they're contained within these first few verses, and he will tease this out throughout the rest of the book. So the three qualities that he really focuses on about Jesus, and on an odd thing, just a little side note, he doesn't even mention the name of Jesus until chapter 2. He talks about Jesus as the Son in these early verses. Always the Son, always the Son, that Jesus is the S-O-N, Son of God. So he talks about these three things, and I've highlighted them towards the bottom of your page, that Jesus is, first of all, pre-existent, existing before all creation. And second of all, that he is exalted, that after living and dying and rising from the dead, he has then ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. So there's that sense in which Jesus has this glory that exists before all creation, and he has this glory now as the risen and exalted Lord over all, cre- uh, over all creation, again, over all things, and that all things will be are and will be put in subjection under him. So there's that sense of his glory and his exaltation that he has in the beginning, that he has at the end. And then you also see this beautiful discussion of Jesus as a human being, that the Son of God had to be a man as well. That the Son of God is, yes, divine, and he argues that he's divine, but that the Son of God is also a human being. And then he goes on to tell us why it's so important that the Son of God is a human being. And he does this, and he's talking about this, and he then goes on to look at angels. We're going to look at angels first, and then we're going to go backwards, back to the prologue, to look at this great theology about Jesus Christ. Because essentially what he's saying, he's saying, yes, angels are wonderful, angels are great, but are they these three things? No. So um, in these first two chapters, we see this repetitive mention of angels. And I think about um, angels, and I think about uh, the supernatural world, and I think of our culture today, where I come from, people are starting to begin to be interested in the supernatural again. You know, after the Enlightenment and in modern thought, it's very uncool to talk about angels. It's very, um, it's because it's seen, anything supernatural is be seen as being, um, it's seen as being something that is probably not real. Remember, anything our rational minds can can acknowledge our th- that's what true reality is. And it all stems from um, the Enlightenment. Remember Descartes' famous words, I think, therefore I am. If I can rationally argue and prove the existence of something, then it truly exists. And remember how that is not, it's actually not helpful for proving the existence of God. And it's not, um, and that, that has been the approach of our society for so many years, since for centuries, and even especially for the first half of the 20th century. And then you start to see that breaking up in different places. And I will say that being from the humanist, intellectual Northeast, I see a difference now. Intellectual humanism and the skepticism and atheism is no longer the predominant worldview. There is a, well, it is. But, well, Christianity never hasn't been the predominant worldview for a long time. Let's just get that out there, starting from the middle of the last century, for sure. I mean, it was just death. So in coming here, it's incredible to me. I can't tell you how many crosses I've seen in the last few months. And, and the proportion of crosses I've seen here, and you know, right, Shirley? 
it's so different from home. People don't have crosses in their home. They don't have crosses around their necks. They don't believe. They don't have the background, the fabric of the Christian faith as their starting point. Um, so in some ways we're at a disadvantage. But what I would also say is that that grip of atheism, which has had some parts of American culture in its death grip for so long, has begun to really loosen up because people because of the supernatural that people experience in different ways. So, um, so what I found in the Northeast is actually that instead of there being atheism as the predominant worldview, I would still say that's the dominant fabric. Then you see people rebelling against rational atheism and reverting to paganism. They're not reverting to Christianity, they're reverting to paganism. You know, talking, you know, so, um, and the scary thing about that is that there's a tie-in with the occult there. So in the valley where I just moved from, witchcraft was very big. Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism was the number one practice religion. There is this um, sense of the supernatural that's not tied down to the Christian scriptures. And that's where it can get dangerous. So whenever I see, um, so I am always keen to affirm, first of all, that yes, we live in a world that is um, affected by the supernatural. We live, what we see is not all there is. And I think that that's often an argument that's being made in our culture to affirm, well, yes, what we see is not all there is. And I, um, certainly I believe this from a very early age and it's probably because I was an imaginative child. And um, so things that even, I, I hesitate to even talk about it in this setting, but I, I Basically, my parents, you know, my dad's a minister, and my mother is very involved in the ministry as well. And um, from one of my earliest memories is singing a song that I will always associate with this one event. And the song is um, Kathleen Thomerson's I Want to Walk as a Child of the Light. And it was a song that was produced by the Fisher Folk community, which was in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. We lived in Aliquippa until I was five. So we would have dinner probably once a week at this you know, artistic community, artistic Christian community. So those songs were very much a part of my early upbringing. And you know how the music, whatever music you hear at an early age is so formative. It's, it's really interesting to see. I always try to, this is terrible, but I always try to brainwash my nieces and nephews by singing hymns to them when they're going to sleep. <laughs> don't, don't tell, but I was also, when I was an actor, I was a nanny in New York City. And one of my favorite things to do was to put the little girl that I took care of to bed. And her parents were Christians, but they weren't super active or their faith did not permeate every aspect of their life. Let's just say that. And so I would just sing that baby to sleep with Christian songs every day. I mean, I sang the Talus Canon. Do you know that one? I'll praise to thee, my, my God, this night for all the blessings of the light. Keep me, oh, keep me, king of kings, beneath thine own almighty wings. That I mean, I just remember singing that to this beautiful little girl. And I, I haven't seen her in 10 years, but I really hope that it got in there. You know. <laughs> um, so anyway, back to this song that was so formative for me. And that song itself was tied in with this supernatural event that occurred in my parents' ministry, which was that this little girl during one of their EYC nights ran out into the street in the city where their church was and she was hit by a car, and she was dead on the scene. Um, and they started to pray as they were calling the ambulance. The ambu in calling 911, the ambulance did, took a long time getting there. They were praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And she got up from the road. She got, she got up 
and there wasn't when the ambulance got there. They, there was no pulse, had been no pulse. When the ambulance got there, got there, she was alive and she was fine, and there was actually miraculously no injury to her body. I know. And this is something I remembered hearing from before I was five. And it's this incredible event that, for me, for, so for me to believe in the supernatural and the inbreaking of God into our world and into our physical and material world, that's not a problem for me. Because I think I knew that at an early age. I knew that her story had involved, as so many stories do, a vision of light as she had died and was being, you know, was somehow being brought back to life. We hear so many stories like that, don't we? We hear them and we, um, and we show them to the world and we say, see, God is real. Our world is spiritual as well as material and physical. And there's more than just what we see with our tangible eyes. And so, um, yeah, Joe. churches, particularly Episcopal churches, are more museums than churches. It is a sad thing. And when you go to Europe, when you go around England, and you see those beautiful Anglican churches, unless there's a choral school there and there are people who are learning, you know, getting musical training, and even then it seems like they're singing words to God, and I believe, and so I can enter into worship in those places, but I, there is a dearth of faith in Europe, and I see it. I see it coming to the U.S. through the Northeast. Um, but it, it, I, let me tell you, it's a breath of fresh air to be here. <laughs> I know I did feel. I always felt, especially as a church planter in in Western Massachusetts, that I was behind enemy lines in some ways. That it was it was really hard work. I mean, just to even tell people about God, and they would say. The hardest part was not telling people about God. The hardest part was talking about Jesus. Because everybody wants to hear, you know, oh, yeah, I go to yoga. Everybody goes to yoga. It's the number one religion in, the, in Western Massachusetts. Well, and, but that's the thing is that in, and I'm not denouncing it per se, but there, I, I know there's often chanting in those classes. And the, the, who knows what the, the chanting is in another language, do you know what you're saying? Even if you're saying it in English, do you know who you're saying it to? Um, it can be in a world that is really spiritual, that is actually supernatural. I, I, I'm reluctant to do that, and I've stopped. You know, I, I did some yoga when I was an actor, but I stopped doing it because it's real. It's powerful. The spiritual. It's a worship. It's an act of worship, a physical act of worship. So, um, with that in mind, so again, my early experiences, I, I never really had any trouble saying this is not all there is. My flesh is not all there is. This was confirmed for me this spring when I saw um, a beloved aunt of mine passed away very suddenly, and I didn't get to say goodbye to her. She was doing exactly what she loved. She was in her early 60s, and she was the most physically fit person I have ever met in my life. But she was riding her bike on a bike path in Hilton Head, which is where she had a home, and she just was not feeling well, got off the bike, and she had a heart attack, just right there. But she had, she had such a strong heart. It was a, ba- it was a mystery to all of us. Um, it was very hard to have not gotten to say goodbye to her. So when I saw her at her wake, and I wonder if many of you have had this experience where you see a dead body, and if it's the dead body of a loved one, you see that body and you say, that's really not her. 
It looks like her, but it really, really doesn't. I recognize that dress, even. That was, you know, but it's not her. And that's because the material is not all there is. We are not just matter. Um, we are also, we also have spirits or souls. And so, um, so all of that to say, do we live in a supernatural world? Absolutely. And so I think often when people, now back to angels, often when people want to talk about angels, they want to say, what they're trying to say is, this is not all there is. I saw an angel, or I want to see an angel, or the angels are protecting me, or whatever that might be. And they, they might be right in that. What they're doing is they're trying to draw people into that, that um, sight of being able to say through faith, this stuff, this matter is not all there is. There's more than just this. And that's a good thing. Um, but when we look at scripture, one thing that's so important is to look at all of the references to angels in scripture. And I won't do you the disservice of trying to go through all of them, especially because we don't really have time. But, um, but let's just say this, that um, in Hebrews, what the message of Hebrews is saying is essentially, yes, angels are wonderful and angels exist and they're fabulous. But do not be detracted by their glory, by the way that God uses them to do his work as, an, as messengers and intermediaries between human beings and God. Do not be distracted by their glory and by their purpose and their usefulness and their very existence. Don't be distracted from worshiping Jesus Christ, who is himself the preexistent one, the exalted one, the glorified one, one who is also a human being who has been um, our great high priest. So in looking at these angels, what would we say? Well, um, angels, what are angels? What are they exactly? Well, as we look at scripture, and I've given you some references, I won't go through all of them, but you remember the birth narratives of Jesus. Remember in Luke that um, the angel comes to Mary. She has a message, or he, she, we don't know, Gabriel, male, not, we're not sure, has a message for, G, for Mary. And then um, we see that um, there's an angel with a message for Zechariah. Then we see in Matthew that um, uh, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, has these dreams given to him by angels. So they are messengers from God, and we see that throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Genesis 18, where, remember, three angels come to Abraham to confirm that Sarah will indeed be pregnant. Remember, Sarah laughs behind the tent. And then those angels go on to Sodom and Gomorrah um, to, to be the, um, the agents for God's will and purposes there. So there's this sense in which angels are messengers, messengers and you see it in their very name in the Greek. Angel, angel, angel has to do, remember the word for the good news is the euangelion. There's a relationship there. The euangelion is the message, the proclamation, the good news. Well, angels, the very name for angel means sent one, a messenger sent from someone else with a message basically, to be given to human beings. So then what are they? They're intermediaries between God and humanity. And we see this especially in the way it was understood that the Mosaic law was given. It, um, it was, it's not explicit in the Old Testament because we see God meeting with Moses. But the, the Jewish thought behind what actually happened on Mount Sinai they say, and they would say it through all the intertestamental literature that we don't necessarily have in our Bibles, 
but which um, Judaism looks at and which would have influenced those in the first century. They would have read that and said, well, that's what happened. What they believed happened was that um, God couldn't have just spoken directly to Moses because it would have been too much. So he was the speaking with Moses was mediated by angels that the law was actually given by angels to Moses. So this is what um, the author to the message, um, the author of the book of Hebrews is saying this when he says in um, chapter 2, verse 2, that um, the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. That message declared by angels, he's referring right there to the law. Because then he goes on to say, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. He is talking about the law. So if angels were the intermediaries by which the law was given, they're messengers from God. They often appear like, like a man. You see this in Ezekiel 40. One like a man, whose appearance was like a man, or a man. And then it describes his appearance. And what they mean is man is the closest thing I can come to to describe what I'm seeing because what I'm seeing is too much for me to be able to describe in human terms. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. It's very interesting. You see in Ezekiel chapter 1 that there's this um, vision that Ezekiel has of the throne of God, the chariot of God, the presence of God, and he sees this presence. Later on, he sees the presence rising up from the temple and leaving. But in chapter 1, it's very interesting to see how he describes these living creatures that are around the throne of God. And let me tell you, their appearance is not always what we think of. You know, I've been... I've been to a few different um, yard sales and things like that here, and there are a lot of there's a lot of angel art. That's the other thing. There are a lot of crosses, and there is a lot of angel art here that I'm just not used to. And I think it's very interesting that angels are depicted so often as women. Can we explain? I don't know what that's about. They're never depicted as women in scripture. And I don't know what, what that's about, except to say that whenever in scripture we see someone seeing an angel, they're awestruck by beauty, I think, and by the glory of God that they see reflected in this poor substitute for God. The angel is just a servant of God, just there to do his bidding. And so you see throughout scripture that whenever anyone is actually spoken to by an angel, um, they fall on their face or they are terrified because the first word out of the angel's mouth is, don't be afraid. What does that tell us about their countenance, what they must look like? Of course, if they were so beautiful, people might be tempted to worship them instead of to worship God. Um, They are awful and they are awesome. I would say awful because there is that terror that struck into the hearts of men and women when they see them. Um, And then one other thing, and so you you would see that they are warriors and guardians. You see that a lot with the Israelites, that angels are surrounding them when they're going out into battle. Um, you see it with the um, guardians at, at the Garden of Eden. Remember, the Lord places cherubim there with swords so that Adam and Eve cannot get back into the garden. There's that guardian aspect. Um, we often depict um, St. Michael, the archangel, in full battle regalia, right, with a sword, with armor, and it's because of his particular defeat of Satan. Um, that he is the one who enacts God's will in in defeating Satan. Um, So essentially, and sometimes we see that angels have personal assignments. We see this in Acts chapter 12, verse 15, where, um, remember, Peter gets out of jail miraculously, and the servant girl sees him and says, I saw him, I saw him, I saw him, and he's waiting outside the locked door out there. She goes back in and says, I saw him, I saw him, and they said, no, no, it's, 
It's his angel. We don't know what that means, but maybe it means, maybe it means, we don't know. And so a lot of people like to think of guardian angels. That's probably the only instance where we could say in scripture that there might very well be something like that. But again, all of this to say that if we were to focus on these servants of God, these ones who serve God, and not just serve God, but in Hebrews chapter 1, I didn't put this down, chapter 1, verse 14, the author says, are they, angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? God sends them out to serve even us. Even though we are lower than the angels, we don't have the glory that they have. From, and I think their glory comes from sitting beside God all eternity long and worshiping him. We don't have that glory. They are sent to serve us. And um, so all of that to say, they are, who are they? They're wonderful and they're glorious and they prove that God exists and that the supernatural world exists. And then the author of Hebrews goes on to say, but they're not enough to be intermediaries between us and God, to save us, to atone for our sin. Only a son, and you can go through and look at um, Hebrews 1 and 2 to look at these different ways in which Jesus Christ is shown to be pre-existent and God himself, one who existed before the creation of the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So there he is saying he is actually divine and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Then he is exalted after his death and resurrection. He is crowned with glory and honor. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which says all has been finished. He has atoned completely for the sins of the whole world, all those sins that hadn't even yet been. He atoned all for them when he went to the cross. And so how is he able to be one who would atone for our sins, except that he is both God and man? And the writer of the book of Hebrews says, You made him, you made Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. Yes, for a little while lower than the angels, but only so that he could then bring us. He could then be one who knows our very sorrows and our very trials and our very temptations. So that then he who was tempted but never sinned would be able to redeem and sanctify our flesh and blood because he has known flesh and blood. And so this is why um, the writer says, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Amen.